God is on the throne, there could hardly be a more appropriate song as we launch our new series today and our first topic. Big words, great old big words, very religious sounding words. And it's no surprise that oftentimes the big words that we use when we talk about faith, especially when we theologians and almost dread to use the word religious professionals, start rolling around words like, you know, systematic theology and eschatology and all those big things. Sometimes big religious words provide more confusion than they do clarity. So our goal in these next several weeks is to address that challenge, and as you can see, at the same time, it's going to be a a book study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, all the big words that we're going to look at over the next seven weeks are drawn from this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. But I hope it's encouraging to you that it's not just our goal to look back in history and find some amusingly large words that were used in the first century, because the fact is that these big words that we still use even today have big implications for the ways that we think about life and how we live and what we do. I'll give you an example. Just a couple of weeks ago, I hope you were here, Pastor Jonathan shared a very powerful message that as part of the message highlighted the work of a group called the International Justice Mission, and it deals with modern slavery, ongoing slavery in today's world. And part of the reason that Pastor Jonathan highlighted that work, part of the reason he's connected to that work is the fact that he works with a younger generation. And as many of you are aware, one of the strengths that our younger generation brings as they look at the suffering of the world is they say, quit talking about it and let's do something. Let's do anything. What can we do? And how can we make a difference? And we are proud of the younger generation for that emphasis. Maybe we think that all of us when we were in the younger generation had that, right? the revolutions of the 60s, and, well, I don't know, my revolution in the 70s was disco. i got to give that some more thought. That's one we don't want to think about anymore. Uh, we really like to think about how can we make a difference in the world. And, and when he talked about it, Pastor Jonathan tied it to a, a very theological issue, one of the big questions of all time, right? If God is God, why can't He just stop all the evil in the world for us right today? Why doesn't He? If He can't, He's not much of a God. If He can and He doesn't, it doesn't seem like He's good. How do we bring those things together? That's a theological question. That's not just some, no, came up this week kind of question. This is a question that goes to the oldest book of the Bible. You know what that book is? Oh, see, most people jump right in and say, sure, it's Genesis, the first book. Uh Uh-uh. Genesis tells the story that is older because it goes back in creation. But the book of Job is considered to be the oldest book in the Bible. And if you know anything about the story of Job, it's all about dealing with this question of suffering, how it comes into our lives, how we endure it, what's the ultimate end of it. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about big words and our need to understand them and their implications in our lives 
today. Words that we use like predestination, redemption, foreknowledge. What are these things? And how do they impact how we think about God? That's what we call theology. That's another big word, right? Theological thinking is nothing more than how we talk and understand God, how we talk about Him, how we understand Him and His work. But we need to do a little something before we dive into the big words. And I want you to hear this part If you don't hear anything else today, hear this part, okay? Big words about God are only important and only have value because they are our attempts to understand our big, big God. And I want you to see it in our Scripture passage for today. Dave read to us earlier from Ephesians chapter 1. That's our passage. You want to open your Bible there and keep it open. But at the very beginning of Ephesians, in verses 1 and 2, you see the salutation. And then in verse 3, where Dave started reading for us today, he read this verse. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, look at that carefully, please. It doesn't say every material blessing. It makes me want to throw up when people always want, oh yeah, God's promised to give me everything. That's not what God has promised, to give you every material blessing. The Bible says He has already blessed you with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's amazing. That's the good news. And the real question we need to ask ourselves before we move away from this verse is this. Are we more amazed at the blessings or the blessor? Where's our heart at? Is your life all about the blessings that God can give you, or is your life, is your love for the God who provides those blessings? As, wow, we sang these things earlier. You you just need to, you need to understand the wisdom that goes into choosing these songs some weeks, and sometimes it's just God doing it as He leads Clark and others who plan the service. But we sang songs. You want to seek God? Here's the question. Are you seeking God's face or are you seeking God's hand? Right? That, that's how we put this thing. Are you seeking the blessing or are you seeking the blessor? When I talk about God's face and His hand, it's, it's using that very well-known image, right? The working mom or the working dad who has to travel for business and they're gone all week and it's a tough week. And they drag themselves back in the door at the end of the week, and they come through the door, and the kids come running, and, he, and he, you know what most of them say. The little immature children say, hey, mommy, hey, daddy, what did you bring me? Now, the slightly more mature children, and my prayer for you is if you're a married person, this is what your spouse says. Honey, I'm just so glad you're back and not just for the help you can give me. It's just good to see you. Are you seeking God's face, or are you seeking His hand? And I I want you to be very clear here. I love little children. I am not taking cheap shots at little children. That's not it. 
we can think about it, though, very wisely in the framework of maturity, right? As the kids get older, as they understand the gifts come and they go, they're just trinkets. The things that were important to me last week are no longer important to me. But the people in our lives, man, it's so much sweeter when that maturing child, when that loving spouse, when that dear friend says, I'm just so glad you're back. Even your coworkers, you know, we're glad you're back. Got the contract, didn't get the contract, were able to close the deal, weren't able to close the deal. You're a part of our team. I'm just glad you're back. It's good to have you back. It's a world of difference, isn't it? And see, so brothers and sisters in Christ, this is what we need to understand. The gifts of God are amazing, and they are generous, and God has, this verse says it, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. But the greatest gift of all is God himself. He chose to share the blessings with us because of who he is, because of his character. And so as he shares himself with us, it's not just what he can do for us, it's not just what he can give us, but who he is. And that's where Paul actually starts. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just praise be to him. That's why I said to you, if we get this part right, it really doesn't, I mean, all the rest of it about the big words is, is nice, but about the big God, that's what's really important. So with that said about the blessor, what we're going to do today is look at one of the blessings that Paul then goes on to enumerate. He, he gives a whole bunch of them here. And if you ever need encouragement, you think, man, I, I don't know, is it worth it? Reading Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, depending on how you, which translation you use, you might see six, seven, or eight blessings in there that are absolutely astounding that God gives. But in particular, he talks about the fact that how we've been chosen how we've been adopted, how we have redemption, how we have the forgiveness of sins. Folks, these are tremendous blessings of God. But we're going to focus on one as we talk about big words today. And again, depending on your translation, the word may not actually be in yours, but he talks about the fact that we have been chosen, chosen in Christ. Our big word for today is the word predestination. It's a big word. What does it mean to be chosen in Christ, to be predestined, as the Bible talks about in a number of places? And it's one of the really big ideas of the Bible, this concept. What does it mean? What is God communicating about Himself and about us? And let's just be honest as we start here and say that the church of Jesus Christ has not always demonstrated great clarity nor great charity when it has come to discussing this topic. Oftentimes we use it to judge one another. Some people call this idea the spiritual Pandora's box. Once you open it, you can't put it back in and people fight about it forever. That is not our purpose today. It is not even my purpose today to tell you what the one take on it is because there are dozens of Christian interpretations of exactly how predestination works. 
It is sad to me that misunderstandings about theology and about big words like predestination have caused Christians to divide themselves from one another. And what's worse is that oftentimes we create barriers for those who have not yet come to faith because they see this struggle, and sometimes in the conversation about predestination, when we don't get it right, when we're not biblically accurate about how we talk about it, it goes back to raising the kinds of questions Jonathan talked about a couple weeks ago. If you really believe God controls everything, if that's how you read the word control, we sang a while ago, God is on the throne, God is in control. But if you take that to mean that God manipulates what flavor of gum you're choosing today, right? God sent the rain in a particular place right there so we would flood that farmer and not that farmer. Then you begin to create a false understanding of who God is and how he works that makes it harder for unbelievers to come to that. How could I trust a God who is so capricious? How could I trust a God who doesn't have any intention? Because you do understand, brothers and sisters from history, when Christianity came along, one of the things that distinguishes the Judeo-Christian faith is that we say, our God is not disconnected. And when I use the term Judeo-Christian, sometimes when you talk to our Jewish friends about how they view the Holocaust, and they view God as disconnected from that, uh, sometimes it's not even fair to include them in it because they say, I don't know, I, I, that's when I quit believing in God that way. So understand, this is an important word we are talking about. And my prayer for today is at the end of our time today, we may not know everything there is. We certainly will not know everything there is to know about predestination and all the biblical verses related to it. But I do pray that we will have a more thorough biblical understanding that encourages us in our discussion and gives a more accurate perception of who God is and how He works. Now, I want to begin by saying we're not just talking about the word predestination, but the beliefs that derive from it. In particular, what we would call, get ready for this, the doctrine of election. I know our high schooler and college, you just, you've been waiting for this, right? The doctrine of election has got nothing to do with what's going to happen next November, not that kind of election. But in verse 4, we see this phrase, he chose us in Him. He chose us in Him. He chose us. So, for the strict Calvinists, the strict predestination people, to them this says that before even the foundation of the world, God chose some individuals to be saved and others to be damned, and there's not just a whole lot that we can do about it. But you see, that's not a fully, thoroughly biblical understanding about the doctrine of election. It's not even a good… Don't think that that's all there is to Calvinism. It's much more complex than that, okay? So be careful about how we throw stones, but be, be wise. Let's look at what the Bible has to say here, and I want us to understand that we've got to understand that the, the, this doctrine of election is also in the Bible alongside the, the doctrines that teach us about a personal journey with God, personal freedom, personal responsibility. So we're going to be trying to work on all that this, this day as we talk about this big word, 
predestination. So I've mentioned the Calvinist. Do me a favor for just a minute. We're going to pretend this is not a classroom, but there's a little bit of classroom moment here that we got to enter into. And, and I think most of you are probably aware of this, but some of you may still be coming to, to uh, grasp this a bit. There are a couple of big views. There, when you come out of predestination, there's a lot of interpretations. But like most things, when you start to divide, it starts up at the top and there are a couple of big branches. So I want to talk today about the two biggest branches that begin to come out of this discussion of predestination. Dozens of variations, but these would be the two main branches of the predestination conversation, the tree, as it would, uh, as we might say. So one position would be called the view of free will will. And what do you do with that under this idea of predestination? It is generally associated with what we call Arminian theology, and that's not a place, folks, that's a person, okay, Arminius. And he was one of the first people who kind of put a word uh, to it to explain what it is. Free will, that people have the freedom to choose, theologically speaking, is tied to the idea that we call universal atonement. Now, here we go again. I use the word universal atonement. I have to tell you, it's not the same thing as universalism. Wouldn't you think it would be? I mean, why can't they make these things simple? But they don't. Universalism is the idea that everybody's going to heaven no matter what happens. I'm okay. You're okay. Everybody around the world's okay. We just need to realize that and, and, and love one another. And there's no special need for repentance. There is no need to come to God. There's no, because we're all going to make it. That's what universalism says. That's not the same thing as universal atonement at all. And the biggest problem with universalism is that it's not biblical in any way, shape, or form. So that's a much bigger challenge. Universal atonement says this, and think it through with me for a moment. When Jesus died, when Christ died on the cross, he died for everybody. He atoned for the whole earth and everyone in it. He was redeeming creation, as it were, in particular, all people. And so this is called universal, or sometimes the word general, atonement. All right? It is tied to the emphasis that many of you will have heard over the decades, whosoever will may come because Christ died for all. Make your choice in free will to follow Christ and you come in under universal atonement. The other interpretation, apart from free will, is a discussion that's often tied to Calvinism, which I've mentioned several times, named after the man John Calvin. And uh, if you don't know his story, I'm certainly not going to go into that today. He was one of the theologians, one of the major theologians of the Reformation. And Calvinistic theology has a teaching that is often referred to as sovereign grace. Uh, there are many, 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 most Presbyterians would fall into this uh, thinking. Anybody who says our church is a reform church pretty much is going to take this view, and that includes a number of Baptist fellowships. It would be a minority of Baptists, but there are Baptist churches who emphasize sovereign grace. And it's based on the idea, this might surprise you, they don't mean any insult to Jesus at all, but they, they talk about limited atonement. Not universal atonement, not general atonement, but limited atonement. And it argues that when Christ died, He died for all who would be saved. 
And because God knows who would be saved, he did not die for those who were not going to be saved so that his effort, his power, his sacrifice is not wasted. He was the sacrifice and the substitute on the cross only for those who had been divinely chosen, all those for whom they had been predestined. Therefore, they've come to be known as the term limited atonement. They don't mean Jesus' power is limited. That is not at all what it means. It doesn't mean that it's not the same effective sin-conquering, death-defeating power of God. It just means it's limited to those who would believe. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, what difference does it make? Uh, Well, the theologians would argue amongst themselves that it makes a, a significant difference. It's not really my point today to choose one or the other for you. What I'm trying to get you to see is that once you open this conversation, and Paul gets into this big word in verse 4, he has chosen you. He gets into this big idea, who's doing the choosing and what's it about? What does it mean? And frankly, the language of predestination bubbles all through this first chapter of Ephesians that we look at. Look at it for just a minute, if you would, please. And by the way, any English teachers in the room or English majors? You were when you went to school. So here's, see, John, can you believe Jonathan was an English major? Freak yeah. Yeah, that really prepared him for ministry. Yeah. Uh, so conjugate this. No, I'm just kidding. So, verses 3 through 14, if you have your Bible open, verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1, it's one sentence. You talk about a run-on sentence? I mean, it's one sentence. Now, if you were really clever, you might say, no, 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 pastor, we don't know that for sure because in the Greek language, there is no punctuation mark, so how would you know that there's only one sentence? Well, I know because I read the Greek books. (laughs) And the Greek scholars say that once you start that idea in Greek, in verse 3, it, the, the idea is not completed until the end of what we call verse 14. You do understand that we went back later, in later centuries after this letter was written, and put in verses and put in punctuation. None of that was in for Paul. It was just one big idea. So he's kind of like the pastor. He's standing there, he's teaching about God, and he's talking. He doesn't realize how long this sentence is going on and on and on. And, and he speaks for what we call 11 verses. And he talks about God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Whose decision was that? Well, that was God's decision. He he gave the blessings. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He, look at that word, verse 5, he destined, or you might interpret, translate it, predestined. He predestined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that He freely bestowed. In Him we have redemption through His blood, forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace that He lavished on us. So you get this idea, God is very, very active. God chose us in Christ, verse 4, predestined us for adoption, verse 5, according to His will, verse 5. It's freely bestowed on us, verse 6. Now, here's the trick. You need to be able to look back at that without dragging John Calvin with you because John Calvin didn't come along for about 1,600 more years. So don't think that Paul was trying to solve this question. He was not trying to create an argument. He was simply making a statement as the Holy Spirit inspired him to talk about God's 
blessings, God's gifts. What is God doing? So be very careful about how you read church history backwards into the Bible. I'm, I'm going to make this bold statement. I'm going to say it this way. Nowhere in Ephesians is the notion of election used to suggest that some are saved and some are damned because God decided that before the foundation of the world. That is not present. What Paul is talking about in verses 3 through 14 is the glory, the absolute glory of God's mercy, the glory of being a part of God's divine election. It's an opportunity to praise Him. It's, it's, it's an opportunity to wonder at His amazing grace and generous mercy. And it is a great contrast with the other religions of their day, right? If you've studied all the, the Greek and Roman gods and you've learned, one of the big things was how capricious they were. When you talk about the nation of Israel even in the Holy Land and this God to whom they would pray and the Baal who, remember, they had to go and wake him up, Baal whom they had to convince to help them. He, was, he might, he might not. He's he listening, he's not listening. That is not the picture of God that Paul is painting right here. He's saying, look, it's very, very different from that. We have a God who is intimately involved, a God who is fully engaged in all aspects of life. And in spite of what you are facing in that city of Ephesus, a port city with all kinds of, of business and negotiation and religions that were full of all kinds of horrible activity, listen, don't think that you got to go out and be crazy to try to get some God to watch you. You have a God who loves you and is intimately involved in your life. That is what Paul is trying to say. He's not trying to start an argument about predestination that we're going to fight with each other and judge one another. So it's important to us, and I'm going to show you why I believe this so strongly. If you read the whole verse and you read it carefully, what does it say? He chose us. What are the next two words? In Christ. Can I burst your bubble just a little bit? My bubble. Because we like, we're the center of our universe <laughs> far too often. Can I just say to you that, that I, I think this verse is teaching us. It's not so much that God has chosen you, that God has selected you because of how wonderful you are, it is not that God has decided for you and took the decision out of your hands. It is that God has selected Christ, and everyone who has chosen Christ is in God's embrace. God chose us in Him before the foundation of the earth, right? That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So therefore, if you are in this Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, you are in Him before the foundation of the world. You are saved. Now, that, that ties us to Romans 8, 29, which says that those whom God did foreknow, He predestined. And that brings in the idea that God does know who across history is going to put their faith and follow Him right? And so he begins to do a work in you so that Romans 8, 28 can be true, which says, we know, we know that all things work together for good to them who 
love God and are the called out ones according to his purpose. If you've been called out, you've come into Christ. God says, I, I stand at the door and knock. I call you in, right? You come in, you come into Christ. He's had a plan for you in Christ before the foundation of the world. You know what his plan is for you? I actually know what it is. He wants to conform you to the image of his son. I know that because I'm so smart. No, I know that because the Bible says so. The Bible says this is what he's about. God is about conforming us to the image of his son. So he has ordained for you and for me from before the foundation of the world, a life in which salvation is offered through the Lamb of God. It is sustained through the Lamb of God. It is protected by the Lamb of God. And you are kept even when you are undergoing great struggles and challenging trials. This is the promise of God. This is what it means to be a part of God's people, to be chosen. Now, let's think about this for a second. So we've looked, we've looked a little bit at these different words, chosen, His will, He's predestined us. We've talked about kind of the main thinking, these two main streams of predestination. I, I want to bring this study home for the morning, kind of wrap it up, because I know when I do academic kind of teaching, sometimes you're short your memory gets shorter rather than longer. So this is a shorter one. So we're going to wrap this up here with a quick look at some of the key teachings that come out of predestination. Because I, I mentioned earlier, Jonathan's message, when you deal with suffering, that has something, if God is causing it, what the heck is going on? But when you understand the Bible has taught us that God has created the world, there is cause and effect. There is reaping. There is sowing. We studied this in small group on Friday night. You're welcome to join us this coming Friday night. When you understand these things are in place, the question is, how, how, do we, how do we in the doctrine of election, this plan that God has, how do we make sense of that? What are, what are the outcomes that come? If you say, I'm going to believe that God actually does have a plan for me. God has has made a way for me. God has put me in Christ. God has allowed, he said, whosoever will may come. I come to Christ and in him, God has this plan for me to become like his son, the doctrine of election. What does it really teach? I'm gonna give you four quick statements. Jot them down, verses, some of the verses that we've looked at already. You'll wanna go back and look again. I'm gonna mention a few others. So one is simply this. The doctrine of election affirms that salvation begins with God. I, I don't know exactly what your tweak on predestination is going to be. I can guarantee you, yours over here is not identical to theirs over there. And I don't want you mad at them for it. I don't want you trying to vote them out of the church for it. I want us to understand there's room for different takes on predestination. But whatever your view is, here's the fact according to the Bible. Salvation begins with God. It's not something we do for Him. It's something we receive from Him. And no matter how strongly you may affirm free will, and I am a very strong affirmer of free will. I'm going to quote it again probably later on, but when Joshua said in chapter 24, verse 15, choose you this day whom you will serve. I understand that's pre-Jesus, but I also understand that that's setting the framework God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That message then is consistent with who Jesus is and what he taught later, right? So, but no matter how strongly you affirm it, listen to what Jesus said in John 6, 44. He said, no one comes to me 
unless the Father who sent me draws him. So where does it start? God does some drawing. It begins with God. I, I think this is very much related to the passage from Revelation where Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's a drawing, right? When somebody knocks at your door, what do you do? You are drawn to the door. You want to look through the keyhole, right? You want to you look through the little window peeper and see who it is. You make a decision. But there's a drawing. That, when the phone rings, now some of us who are trying to get rid of landlines, we, we, now we just ignore them 90% of the time. But the fact is, the phone rings. There's something in us. We're drawn to, to respond in some way. And that's what the Bible says. Jesus said the Father has to do the drawing. It begins with God. But that's not all it says. The second thing we know for sure is that the doctrine of election maintains that salvation is by grace. Just because Ephesians 1 says we were chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world, that doesn't mean uh, it's not by grace. Matter of fact, that pretty much precludes how many of you did something before the foundation of the world? Yeah, I didn't. That, that pretty much precludes me earning something from God, right? God doesn't owe me salvation. I can't deserve it. See, and I, this is, gets, gets beyond us, right, because it gets into eternity, and God is eternal, and we are not. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But here's what we know. The Son of God was perfect. God existed in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit still exists in three persons. And the Son of God accepts the assignment to be the Lamb of God, to save the world, knew that we would never be able to earn it ourselves. So then it becomes, it's, it's up to God by grace to say that God so loved the world, He sent His Son. His Son so loved the world that He accepted the assignment. The Spirit so loved the world that He comes and He lives within us and He guides us into all truth. Folks, it is by grace you are saved through faith. Now, we'll see that again in Ephesians 2. That's where the famous verse is, right? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. But it's the doctrine of election that teaches that. Third thing the doctrine of election teaches, it explains salvation comes through Christ. And folks, this is important because today with all the syncretism in the world, all this thing of, well, it doesn't really matter, you know, watch out for cultural appropriation, don't ram your ideas down my throat. Whatever. Listen, the Bible says we are chosen in Him. The basis for election is through Jesus. And, and in this sense, I'm going to throw a bone and say the Calvinists have this right that God did choose who was worthy of salvation. And you know how many he found? One. One. Jesus. In that sense, God chose who would be elected. Jesus was elected. We're only elected if we are in Jesus. Jesus is the way. Salvation comes through Christ. I am, he said, the way, the truth the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Salvation comes through Christ. God decided to choose everyone who would choose Christ. So that's why the doctrine of election does not obliterate personal freedom. It does not obliterate personal responsibility in regards to Christ. That's why the Bible tells us again and again what to 
walk this way, do this, make this decision, choose this, choose whom you will serve. And let's be clear about something because I hear people talk about this incorrectly. I, I have done it in my own past. Be careful about talking about what God has done through Christ as God's plan B when man fell into sin. God knew. <laughs> and so he came up with a plan A. And Jesus is plan A. You have to be in Christ from before the foundation of the world. There was no plan A for plan B in Jesus to replace yet because this was before the foundation of the world. It's plan A for God. Belonging to Jesus is the basis for election. Jesus said, I know my sheep and they know my voice. Yeah, see that, this is it. It comes through Jesus. Last thing, the doctrine of election demands that salvation be followed by holy living. It doesn't say that it's proved. It doesn't say that it's earned. It just says it is followed by holy living. He says, look in verse 4. He said, he chose us before the foundation of the world to be, what are these words? Holy and blameless. Wow. So we're chosen in love because we are in Christ, and if we are in Christ, we should act like it. We should be conformed to the image of His Son. Our moral behavior should reflect the family tree of which we are a part in Christ. We are in Him, and we should live like Him, born again into His likeness. And when it says that word holy, let me just be clear on something. The word for holy, hagias, what it means is different. Sometimes you've heard the words set apart. In other words, you have a particular purpose. So a temple or a sanctuary is a holy building because it has a very set apart purpose. The Sabbath was not like all other days. It had a set apart purpose purpose. And God's people are to have a set-apart way of life. We are to be different. And please, please, can we define different as something other than I don't fill in the blank. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't chew. I don't go with girls who do. I mean, you know, that kind of thing, right? That's what you say in Tennessee. You know, all about, I, don't, I don't, all the tobacco, yeah, I, I don't, neither does my girlfriend. Well, good for you. Let's define it not in a negative way. Let's define it in a positive way. What do you mean, Pastor? How about this? They'll know you are my disciples in that you have love for one another. Is your level of forgiveness today more profound than it was last year at this time, last week at this time? Because if not, you're not growing in Christ. You're not being holy. You're not being set apart. So for positiveness, let's think about what's our level of forgiveness? What's our attitude like? What's the depth of our love? What is the strength of our commitment to our spouses, to our children, to our church family, to our God? I was having the conversation in the lobby today before we started out there in the gathering area just about how painful it is to try to help some folks who have distanced themselves from the church. And I was contrasting uh, Brother Tim, who, who 
went to be with the Lord this week, a servant of God, a servant of other people, loved people, with another situation that I had been in recently where it had just been somebody who had really distanced themselves from their faith that they had grown up with. Folks, I want to say to you, one of the ways we demonstrate that we are holy is that we hang together as God's people. You have been set apart. Y'all have been set apart. Not just you individually, us together. So, my closing word for today, and I want to invite the praise team to come on up. They want to. We're going to close with a song. So when you think about this, what does it mean to be set apart? Who does the setting apart? Who does the choosing? Yes, we are chosen in Christ. But that word chosen, as I said, takes me back to Joshua 24, 15. Choose you this day. The relationship you are going to have with God. The relationship you're going to have with God's people. Have you chosen to be a part of this church? Have you chosen to be a part of the faith? Have you received Christ as your Savior? Choose Him and you are chosen by God because God chose all those who were in Christ before the foundation of the world. The song we're going to sing in just a moment, I Give Myself Away. God has a plan for you. If you choose to follow Him, He has a plan for you how to give your life, how to live your life. But you have to choose this day whom you will serve. And the great news is you'll never out-choose God. God stands always ready, knocking at the door, arms open wide. Let's pray. Father, we thank You and we praise you. You are the one worthy of praise and worship today. In Jesus Christ, you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing, and we are grateful. And our prayer, O oh God, is that as we turn to your word, whatever the big words are that we see, whatever the big ideas are that we have to wrestle with because our minds are limited, that you give us insight from your word, that you would teach us and you would help us in our spirit by your mercy and grace to grasp the mystery of your will that we might experience all that you have planned for us in the fullness of your time. God, we pray that we might live abundantly in the praise of your glorious grace and your great mercy. Thank you for choosing us in Christ before the foundation of the world. May your name be praised and all God's people agreed and said, Amen.